True story here. There was a, uh, a guy who came from England to America to go to a resort. And when he was coming over, he brought his, or he had his Rolls Royce shipped because he wanted to be able to use it while he was in the country. So they shipped it. He was, when he arrived, the car was ready for him. He was driving it around and the car had some trouble. So he called Rolls Royce and said, my car's having some trouble. They said, we will have a mechanic over with the part you need and it'll be fixed within 48 hours. Sure enough, mechanic showed up, um, fixed it, flew back and the car was fine. He enjoyed the rest of the trip with the car, everything worked fine, had the car shipped back when he returned home. And towards the end of the year, he realized he never received a bill from Rolls Royce. So he wrote a letter, said, I received service from my car on such and such a date in the United States of America for this problem. And I realized I've never received a bill. I'd be happy to pay it if you could send it to me. He received a letter back from Rolls Royce, said, in our files, there's no such account of anything that has ever been wrong with a Rolls Royce that you speak of. It's a fancy uh, way of defining the term justification. He had a debt. The debt was completely erased, no longer existed. Today we're going to talk about a man who got a similar letter, not from Rolls Royce, but from God. It came in a little bit of a different form. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, the first nine verses. It's a well-known story of, of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, but one I think we could easily miss what's going on. Saul we met in Acts chapter 7 for the first time as a a young scholar, a young Jewish scholar, at the stoning of Stephen. If you remember, he had some garments laid at his feet, and he was standing there approving of Stephen being stoned. Then we meet him again here in Acts chapter 9, and after a couple chapter hiatus, he becomes a central um, human character in the book of Acts. And then we explode out of Acts into his, his letters from Romans all the way through to Philemon. As a side note, you ever wonder why the letters are listed the way they are? Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, etc., etc. Anyone have any idea? Size order. Longest to shortest. Romans being his longest epistle or letter. Philemon being his shortest. And they just go in descending order. How about that for some really uh, inspired placement of, of Scripture? And we'll get to know Paul much better. And those letters were written um, during the time of the book of Acts. Um, but today as we look at him, I, I want to talk about him. This was, this was a bad dude. This was not your average anti-Jesus guy. He wasn't the type of guy you, you, know, you try to invite to church with you, and he's like, hey, I'm not really interested in that type of stuff. No, this is the type of guy, you invite him to church, he'd probably have your throat slit. He was a, a bad dude. He, um, he wanted to stop people from worshiping Jesus. He wanted to silence them, and he wanted to scare those who didn't yet believe in Jesus away from him. He did this in a variety of ways. He wasn't a, some sadistic criminal in the world's eyes. He was a Jewish scholar who felt there was false teaching about a false Messiah that was leading people astray and, uh, and desecrating the name of God. But what's interesting is Paul tells us what a wicked person he was. If, if you look at Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way, which is what uh, followers of Christ were referred to, followers of the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Next verse, he says, I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he was persecuting, prosecuting, and even 
uh, contributing to the, the death, the killing of Christian people. In, in chapter 26, he says, um, where are we at, 26, 9 through 10, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so. In Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's a bad dude. I don't think we can understand how bad he was. Think, uh, think Osama bin Laden on crack regarding Americans. Paul, Saul, hated Jesus. He hated God. Well, imagine for a minute, if you will, you have a child. Or if you know someone that does, that means if you live in any proximity of people, that someone was messing with your kids. Someone was, was messing bad, beating, uh, torturing, killing your, your very own children. Okay? They were telling lies to your children about you. Your mom, your dad, they, they don't really love you. In fact, they hate you. They're sick, wicked, manipulative people. They just want to destroy you. They have no good intentions for you. And, and trying to lead your kids away from you and, and to inflict pain on them and even killing some of them. Now, how would you as a parent want to treat someone who did something like that to your kid? Now, God the Father had a guy messing with his kids named Saul. How did God deal with Saul. That's what we're going to look at today. If someone messed with my kids, I might meet them on a street too, like Jesus met Saul. I might like to blind them and knock them to the ground like Jesus did to Saul, but I don't think the story would necessarily end the same way. So let's look what happened when the dad found out what the guy was doing to his kids, and they had a confrontation on a road right outside Damascus. Acts chapter 9, nine verses today. But Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I'm sorry. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Breathing threats and murder. What that is is a very clear figure of language, which is saying, dude was acting like a bull. You ever see the bulls when they... <laughs> and their paw on the ground. This is the exact same language one would use. It's an inhaling angry breath in preparation of a strike. So Luke is saying Paul was an angry bull, paw on the ground, snorting. He was ready to attack. He got a, letters, a letter from the high priest. High priest was the authority over all Jewish affairs. So he had permission to persecute these people who were anti-Jewish, supposedly. And he was heading off to Damascus. And Damascus was about 175 miles from Jerusalem. Imagine that trip by foot through rough terrain. There's one angry, angry guy willing to put in that type of legwork to go and persecute followers of the way. So he's going. He's going to bring men or women um, bound to Jerusalem. And it says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, you look at the other accounts of, of this event in Acts, which we'll come to in the weeks and months ahead. This was midday desert is one stinking bright light. Okay? This is not a, some strange little, oh, this is boom, got knocked to the ground and blind. It was like, oh, it's God. No, it's boom. Okay? He's knocked to the ground and he's blind. Jesus says to him, 
why are you persecuting who? Me. Now, don't miss that. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? That's not what he says. He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, we're not going to dig deep into this today. We could, but think about all that that means for how Jesus looks at his followers. Look how closely he identifies with us as Christians. An offense against one of us is an offense against Jesus himself. Think about what that means when Jesus calls us to love one another in the context of the fellowship of believers, the church. When we love one another properly, think of who it is that we're really loving. And when we don't, think of who it is that we're offending. The ramifications of that are huge. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Jesus need the answer to that question? What the heck are you doing? I don't understand. Saul, what's up? He knew the answer, didn't he? And Saul knew he knew the answer. And Saul says, who, who are you? See, he was firmly convinced that Jesus was dead. He was a false Messiah that got killed on the cross, stuck in the tomb. And then Jesus showed up. That'll freak you out. Notice there that what you believe doesn't define what's true. What's true defines what's true. Saul wasn't like, well, I don't believe you're the Messiah. No, he's not going to have a, an intellectual back and forth. You prove to me that you really are God. No, that didn't happen here. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me, except through me. Nobody dies and goes to heaven and says, well, I just don't believe you're true. No, he is the truth. Saul didn't believe in him. Think of how screwed up you would be if you were so convinced he wasn't real. He didn't really raise, rise from the dead. That you are trying to kill people that believed he did. And then this, this false guy who didn't really die shows up and says, hello. Boom. That will screw you up. Saul got flipped upside down in his head. Why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who, who are you, Lord? This doesn't make sense. And he said, Jesus, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. He doesn't say, Saul, will you please choose to love me? Will you follow me? Will you be my friend? Please, can you stop fighting against me? No. He says, I'm Jesus. Get up and do what I tell you to do. It says here, the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So I was reading this this week and thinking about it. I was struck by a question. And that is why, if you look in your bulletin, you have what is identified as a zero-point sermon. This is illegal in homiletical circles. So I don't want you to show this to anyone who, who preaches or teaches preachers, because I'll get in big trouble for a zero-point sermon here. But hopefully God will graciously allow us to work through this. It's called WOW. And the reason it's called WOW is because that's all I'm seeing here. Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself to Saul? That's the whole thing I want to look at today. Why did Jesus meet this man, this enemy of his, on the road to Damascus? Did he need him? It's like, dude, we got to pack the Bible. We need an author for those letters. I got a gap right here, like 500 pages. Who's going to fill it? You! Let's go get him. No. Well, she's like, oh, I'm so lonely. 
I just need a Jewish friend, a, a smart one, a, a scholar. Oh, oh, I just want someone to love me. How about Saul? Saul, will you love me? No. Why the heck did he do this? I think in part, yes. It's one of the problem with asking questions with this church is you guys actually have answers. We need another audience that has no idea what I'm talking about. Jesus didn't need him. Jesus wasn't lacking. Jesus wasn't lonely or incomplete. He simply loved him and chose him. That's it. He loved him. He chose him. And you'll never fully understand why. Saul had nothing to offer God. Nothing. In fact, he had everything against him. And when Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus, he had every right to kill Saul dead then. Boom. Saul was guilty. The judge had arrived. He could have cast his judgment, and you are dead. And he is still just and perfect and loving. But he did it. He forgave him. He reconciled him. He restored him to a position of sonship. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This guy was a wicked, dirty, rotten, awful, God-hating jerk. Nobody's going to disagree with that. And God showed up on the road to Damascus, and he didn't throw a beat down. He gave him a big old hug. You hate me, but I love you. You're killing my friends. You're killing my kids, but I love you. You, you are trying to tell people lies about me, but I love you and I forgive you. In fact... Not only that, I forgave you by choosing to die on the cross to be separated from the Father for a period of time to take the wrath of God upon myself to put my righteousness upon you and to give you, my former enemy, eternal life so I might call you friend. This makes no sense. Well, I don't think it's fair that there's only one way to God. That's stupid. Is that okay to preach and use the word stupid? I don't think there's, it's fair there's only one way to God. It's not. There should be zero. One isn't fair. Zero is fair. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Saul's life, boom, changed right here. He didn't become a carnal Christian. He, he wasn't compartmentalizing God. He was like, oh, I'm kind of busy with this, but I'll work God in here, and I'll, I'll try to read my Bible a little bit, and maybe I'll talk to someone about it. No, it was, boom, 180-degree turn. It wasn't even a 180-degree turn. It was the equivalent of a llama becoming a cheetah. God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He came to transform us from one thing into another. Paul went from an enemy of God, spiritually dead, to alive and a friend of God like that. Why did Jesus do this? It makes absolutely no sense. None. It was by grace alone, through faith alone. And Paul, you're going to hear me say Paul and Saul back and forth. I'm sorry. Change his name in the middle of Acts. I can't keep it straight. It has to do with a Greek audience or a Jewish audience. We'll just understand what I'm saying. Saul understood at this moment in time, amazing grace. I'm on my way to Damascus to kill followers of Christ, and oh my gosh, he's real? 
Oh my gosh, he's alive? Oh my gosh, he's talking to me? Oh! And Jesus doesn't kill him. He embraces him. Think of all that means. All the people out there who say, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I don't really care what you believe. I'm telling you what's true. Well, I don't think that God would send people to hell. It don't really matter what you think. God has told us what he does. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, I don't believe that. Okay, I'm telling you what it says. It's got all the weight. I can give you the proof. It holds water. It's very clear. If you want to deny it, you can deny it. But it's going to end really, really, really bad. Because one day when you meet Jesus, you're not going to have an intellectual argument with him. He's not going to say to you, why didn't you believe in me? Well, I didn't feel that there was enough evidence. You know? He's going to say, why did you choose to deny me? And you're going to go, uh? And you've got to understand what we're entrusted with here. We're not having an intellectual battle, though we will at times intellectually debate. We have the truth, and we confront lies. Saul was an intellectual genius who was convinced that Jesus wasn't real, and the only way he came to know Jesus was real was Jesus chose to reveal himself and save him, and you can never fully wrap your mind around why. Well, that's great. That's great when it comes to Saul. Anyone here ever kill a Christian before they came to faith? Anyone here like, I'm going to destroy the church in America before they came to faith? No, we leave that to the Christians today. They destroy the church right now. We were never like this. We were never wicked, were we? We were never like, I hate Jesus, and, and you're a follower of Christ. I'm going to gut you. I'm going to bleed you out slow. No, we were like, eh, we were indifferent, apathetic. We didn't care. It wasn't that important. So Saul coming to faith, that's amazing grace. Us coming to faith, yeah, who really, seriously, not a big deal. Well, when I, when I went to seminary, see, coming to faith later in life, you've you got to learn on the fly the, the Christianese stuff. Well, there's this thing called sharing your testimony. You guys know what that means? You tell the story about how you came to faith. And uh, my first year in seminary, you sit around, everybody tells their story how they came to faith, and the stories are, are broad range. Some are really cool. Some are kind of silly. Some are like, well, see, I, I grew up in the, the streets of Chicago. I was a gangbanger. I was a bad dude. I killed people. Spent some time in jail. I sold drugs. I, I slept around with all the ladies. I was just a bad guy. And then one day, the Lord just revealed himself to me, and I came to faith, and, and I turned my life over to Christ, and and I've been shot, and I've had people try to kill me in various ways, and, and I've led people to faith in Christ, and I'm a new man, I'm a new creation, and, and life in Christ is awesome, and I have this ministry to the gangs of Chicago, bringing people out of the gangs into eternal life. That's a cool story. When I was five years old, my mom left a cup of soda on the table, and she told me I couldn't drink any, and I, I snuck a sip. And I was just convicted of sin so badly at that time, and then as I was reading my Bible, you know, God's love and forgiveness just became so clear to me. So when I was five, after swigging that soda, I came to turn my life over to Christ. Cool, right? Five-year-old soda sucker and a gangbanger. Who had the greater grace? Who had the greater grace? Who's, who's got the better story? You ever stop and think about that? Saul? Or the grandma who comes to faith baking cookies? Who gets greater grace? Same thing. You understand that? Oh, my mom left out some diet soda. I drank it. And I was just convicted of sin. Well, darn right you should be. That's sin. One little bit. 
separated from God for eternity. I killed somebody. You, you sinned. But they all, all were separated from God by their sin. The problem, guys, I think the problem we have is that we have interpersonal comparison when we think about grace. So we compartmentalize it so easily. How could Saul compartmentalize it? Jesus showed up to him on the road to Damascus. You can't kind of forget about that, can you? Well, you know, for about two weeks, I was, I was living, living on fire for the Lord. And then I got busy, and I forgot. Yeah, oh, yeah, he showed up to me at Damascus, but I'm too busy. I'm making tents, and I am making a killing. I'm selling tents left and right. I started a new business. We're going to call it, you know, Chabelas. That's a Jewish version of Chabelas. Chabelas, and we're, we're just selling all sorts of outdoor goods, and I don't have time for Christ. That didn't happen. You can't. When you, when you are aware of the grace you've received, you can't miss it. But we compare it interpersonally. We, we like to compare ourselves to the five-year-old soda swigger. I mean, yeah, we, technically, intellectually, we know we receive grace, and we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, but we're not really that bad, are we? I mean, how many of you consider yourself pre-Christ wicked? How many of you, apart from Christ, really consider yourself a wicked, nasty, God-hating enemy of God? Not really, right? But you were. Or you are. Think of the ocean. Say we all go down to Bethany Beach today. And out there is Africa. Right? And Jesus shows up. Say he brings a boat just because it gets wacky if he's going to walk us out. He says, all right, I'll take you out by your good factor. So he says, Bob, you've got to start at the shore. I'm messing with Bob. But he says, he says Renee, I'm going to take you 500 miles out. Because you, you're like a saint. Renee, Jesus is saying, you're like a saint. So we're going to go 500 miles out. So, Bob, you start at the shore swimming. You start here 500 miles out. you got to get to Africa. Who gets there? Got two, two dead, drowned people. Nobody swims thousands and thousands of miles through the sea. It's impossible. Saul was a shore dweller. The five-year-old soda swigger, say he was out five miles. The point is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. What happens is we look at each other. I'm a nice guy. Before I came to faith, someone, someone said to me once, you know, if you would just believe in Jesus, you'd make a really good Christian. What the heck does that mean? At the time, I, I'm like, well, but now I'm like, that's just one of the stupidest things I ever heard. What they're saying is, you're a nice person. You don't drink. You don't smoke. You don't sleep around. You take care of old people that fall in the street. You're, you're just societally nice. You're morally conformed. Well, you're a nice person. Yeah, by person to person I am. But see, they also don't get to know what goes through my head, the thoughts I have. I've never actually killed someone. I'm the one person you may still meet who never stole anything in my entire life. Once I accidentally almost did, and I was like uh, falling apart. I forgot to pay for a pack of gum when I was at a store like my dad. So I'm like, I hadn't left the store. It wasn't technically stealing. I've never smoked. I've been drunk once, and it was by accident. It was in college. I was, um, Laura lived in a suite with a bunch of friends. They all went out, but they had cable. So I was sitting in their suite lounge. And they had this thing called Kahlua. Anybody ever have Kahlua? It's really good. I thought it was chocolate milk. So I'm putting Kahlua in cold milk, and I'm watching basketball all by myself. And an hour later, I had to go to the bathroom, and I got up, and I went, I'm like, what the heck, what the heck is this? I have never been drunk in my life, except that time. So I'm a good person, right? But not by God's standards. Not by God's standards. I'm a really wicked, apart from Christ, nasty person. 
And if I can't realize by comparison of God's standards how bad I was, I can't understand how great grace truly is. And I think what happens is we, we don't allow the Holy Spirit to convict us or to work through us to convict other people of sin. We simply want to tell them facts about Jesus. We uh, had a conversation this week with, um, well, it doesn't matter with who, a couple people, a couple. And they were telling me about, they live down in the D.C. area, about some stuff going on in their church. They're trying to understand um, how to approach it. And I really applaud them for how they're doing it. But I asked them just out of curiosity, I said, how does a person become a member at your church? Will you sign a statement of faith? Uh, you know, that you, you believe these things on the statement of faith. We have one on the website. Um, but you do realize, I thought about this in the conversation, if the devil showed up, he'd sign the statement of faith. Right? You, you don't have to be convicted of sin to sign a statement of faith. You, you have to have a miraculous work of God take place in your lives. And then... We're so bad, we have to be reminded of it time and time again because we so quickly forget. Even Saul, do not neglect to meet together. Encourage one another. Build one another up. He talks about the deceitfulness of sin, the, the deceitfulness of heart, of our hearts within us. Even Saul on the Damascus Road had to be reminded of grace again and again and again. The point I want you to get is he was saved by faith, through grace, not by works. He didn't deserve it. And you're not as good as you think you are. Saul wasn't worse than you in God's sight. We were just like Saul. We had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But back to the first question. And this is the kicker. Why, though? For what purpose did God save Saul? For what purpose did God save you? He tells us. Any ideas? a good point. It allows you to, to interact and relate with people who have a similar background. Um, it is true that if you've come to faith out of a gang life, you can interact with people in the gang setting better than someone who comes to faith from a, you know, uppity uppity Scarsdale, New York. Hey, gangbangers! You're like, what the heck? Doesn't work so well. Gangbangers going to have a little trouble interacting with the CEO of a Fortune 50 company. But when you knew the guy, growing up with him, makes it a little easier. So yes, it helps with context. But for what purpose was Paul saved? For what purpose are we saved? There's an interesting thing in 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1 was, hey, coincidentally written by Saul. And he says here, I'll take it from... It's a long day when you're like, this doesn't look right. You see, that doesn't say 1 Timothy. That says 2 Thessalonians. I'm like, oh boy. We're going to go to 1 Timothy here. Chapter 1. This looks much better. This is much more promising when you're in the right book. Verse 12. I thank him. I'm going to take it through verse 16. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, 
that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He was saved to be used as a tool in the hands of the Redeemer, to, to steal a Paul Tripp title. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Everybody knows that verse. You're saved by, by grace through faith and not by works, so no one can boast. Right? You've all heard that one before? What's verse 10 say? There's something else that goes on the back of them. There's a big so what? So that we might do the good works God has prepared beforehand for us to do. See, we often get stuck on, I'm saved by grace through faith and not by works, so it doesn't matter what I do. Yeah, you're right, if you're saved by faith through grace. But if you're saved by faith through grace, it doesn't matter what you'll do, but you will do the good works that God prepared beforehand for you to do. You guys understand what that means? It means you can't compartmentalize Christ. He's the Lord of your life. He's in charge of everything. And you were saved, not so that you could feel good and be like, I'm going to heaven when I die. No, that's true. But Jesus isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. He took you out of death and brought you into life so that you might be used to glorify him rather than trying to glorify yourself. Saul got it on the road to Damascus in that moment. Now, it wasn't like right there, he's like, boom, and he's just set. He was a perfectly matured Christian at that moment. No, we'll see what happens to him. But he was a perfect Christian because there are no imperfect Christians. This thought came in my mind this week. There's no such thing as an apathetic Christian. Do you know what that means? You think about that for a moment. There's no such thing as an apathetic Christian. You can't truly compartmentalize Christ if you've got him. It doesn't mean you're going to live perfectly. It doesn't mean you're not going to have times when you try to compartmentalize him. I was reading Romans 7 this morning. Give it a read at some point. Even though you know what you should do, you won't always do it. But you can never be complacent in your current level of sin if you truly love Christ. Paul got it because Paul understood grace. We will get it more fully the more fully we understand grace and understand that you were saved for a reason, and that reason is to bring glory to God, to be used for him, for his purposes, as a holy nation, and as a royal priesthood. God saved you so that you could go out and declare who he is and what he has done to a lost world. Period. That's your mission. How do we do that? Again, we'll look at that all throughout the, the book of Acts. But why do we do it? It's what we were made to do. Uh, Spurgeon has a, a great quote. Um, I was having a discussion this week, um, which I need to talk to you two guys about, with um, Curly, the, the Q Place guy. Um, everybody else ignore what I just said there. But I was talking with this guy who, who runs this ministry that, that helps do these um, conversation groups, which, which we're putting one together. And um, he was telling me that they, they found that roughly 97% of people who profess faith in Christ never share their faith and, quite frankly, don't care. Meaning, they're not looking for opportunities to tell people about what Christ has done in their lives and what he wants to do in theirs. There's something a little bit off about that, because the reason you have been saved is so you might declare the wondrous works of God. Do you see that? What might happen if we understood what we've received, just as Saul did? You would be floored again and again and again, yet even being floored by it, we so easily fall back into this complacency. I do it, you know? 
A morning like this morning. Guys, I get to gather with you all to worship God. I get to gather with you to worship God, to look at his word, to rejoice over what he's done in our lives, to, to, to just be amazed by what we were and what we have been made. And then I can get up that same morning and be like, oh my gosh, I got a two-year-old, yep, 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 I'm running behind, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my mind. It's, it's like, really, John, really? Like, does any of that really matter? You get to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ and worship the Lord who appeared to you and saved you by grace, through faith, while you were an enemy of his. Come Tuesday, we're all running around, we're busy with the work week, we've got things going on, we've got problems in our lives, distracting us from, from everything to do with God. Guys, we are so screwed up in the head because we have to be reminded of who God is and what he's done for us. But as we're reminded more and more, we stay focused better and better. To the point that you, you begin to not be able to get up without understanding who got you up and why they got you up. You begin to go to work and understand not just what, what you have to do, but for whom you're doing it. And you begin to look at people differently. They're, they're not just bit players that cross by. They are people made by God in his image to live in an eternal relationship with him. And guess what? You got this awesome gift of knowing the truth and seeking opportunities to share the truth with them. That's crazy. Remember years ago, Renee, I'm sure you remember it, the, the free groceries at Wegmans thingy? If you found out Wegmans had free groceries on Tuesdays from 4 to 5, anyone who made it through the register between 4 and 5, all their groceries were free. Would you tell somebody? Right? You'd tell be like, Hey, did you know that Wegmans, you probably have to balance it so it doesn't get so full that you get through at 505, but you get the gist. You're going to tell everybody you really care about that groceries are free from 4 to 5, whatever's in your cart. If you go over to Wegmans on Thursday, it's, it's free, right? Well, how about eternal life? You know, you could save $150, $250 a week on groceries. Or you can be reconciled to God. Why do we get so much more fired up about free groceries than eternal life? Because we all screwed up people. We are screwed up people who are being transformed from one degree to another of righteousness. And little by little, the eternal life becomes so much more grand than the free groceries. And we're in this process where it's free groceries, eternal life, to eternal life. Oh yeah, there's something about free groceries, but who cares? I got grace. And you can have it too. When I look at, um, when I look at this story, of what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. When I hear testimonies of people, some of them are pretty cool. But if you listen the right way, they're all pretty amazing. They all are wow stories. From a five-year-old convicted of sin, it's the only God can do that, to a guy coming out of a gang life, it's the only God can do that. And as you talk to people, it's not bad to share your story. It's bad to share your story if the focus is on you. If the focus is on Christ, that's how to share your story. You see, Saul didn't walk around and be like, Hey, my name's Saul. I was on the road to Damascus and let, you, let me tell you my story. No, he would tell the story. But the story wasn't about him. The story was about the grace that God bestowed upon him and that he offers to all who would believe. Do you see how crazy that is? 
do, do you get, all I'm hoping is you get a little glimpse of how crazy grace is. And you start with that little glimpse and you understand that you have it too. Saul's story is your story. It's the same story of everyone who came to faith in Christ. God appeared. God revealed himself. God showed us a very bright light. And we were once blinded, and you'll see next, as we get back into this in a few weeks, I'll explain why, that the blinders were removed. Let me explain here also so you don't miss this, and then we'll close. He was blind for three days, and he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. That was no divine punishment. He was not guilty. It was a gift. Think about that. Your entire world had been turned upside down. And God graciously said, hey, go to Straight Street. Just relax. Let your head settle in, buddy. I just flipped everything over on you that you thought was true and showed you it's a lie. Everything that you thought was a lie and showed you it's true. Take a break. Let it all settle in. You'll be fine. And I'll send a friend by. His name's Ananias. And when he shows up, you'll get your sight back. You're not blind permanently. And he'll help you understand, in part, what it is that I have in store for you. As you think about Saul's life, was this a miserable guy? This was a guy who rejoiced when he was persecuted. This was a guy who got stoned in the right way again and again and again. He was shipwrecked. He was abandoned. He was whipped. He had all sorts of problems in a worldly sense. But he rejoiced constantly because he understood what he had received. Here's what we got from this. May God help us be reminded daily of who we were and what we have become. May God help us to understand more fully the amazing grace we have received and understand the responsibility we've been entrusted with. Saul's got a cool story. You got a cool story too because it's the same story of unmerited grace, love, mercy. Let's pray. Father God, I, I look forward one day to meeting Saul. I have no idea what he looks like. I have no idea what he sounds like. I'm sure it's nothing like I expect, but I look forward to meeting him, and I look forward to him telling me this story in person, alongside you. I look forward to, to seeing, uh, Lord Jesus, the, the smile that will creep across your face as we rejoice, not so much in the fact that Saul came to faith, but that you brought him to faith to reveal your love and grace and mercy. I thank you for the fact, Lord, that that I have a story like this to tell to. I never tried to kill anyone. I never uh, tried to destroy your church. I, I never had the wickedness in a, in a human sense of, of this man. And in part, that's a sin itself. Because I was just apathetic and indifferent. At least Saul had, had commitment and passion. It was wrong, wrong directed. But at least he had it. But Christ, I thank you for the fact that you chose to reveal yourself to me. And for those who know you, I, I just thank you for the same. And I pray we would understand more fully what that means. Who we were and what we have become. Now, this was no intellectual exercise. This was a miraculous act where you opened our eyes to the truth and you chose us before the beginning of time. God, help us understand the love you have for us. Help us understand what it is you've called us to. Help us to understand that all you call us to is a gift, and it's a delight, that we are entrusted with an awesome responsibility, but yet it's what we were made for, 
and it is what will bring us true joy and happiness and peace and hope. I also pray that you help us see people more fully as you see them, not as friends or enemies based off our personal preferences, but people created in your image. Help us to see those who you have redeemed as who they really are, brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are not yet redeemed as who they are, lost, enemies of yours, but not to be beaten, to be loved, to be reconciled, to be presented with the truth in grace and humility and patience and perseverance. God, I pray that you would allow us to, to see people's eyes opened to the truth. I pray that you might use us at times in manners as you've used Paul in ways that are completely unexpected. But God, most of all, I pray that we would remember this is a story not about Saul, not about us. It's about you, the sovereign creator, redeemer, and sustainer of all things, the holy judge of, of the universe, who we stood condemned before, but we've been made righteous through. As we approach Easter, God, I pray that we might remember that Easter is not a one-week-a-year celebration, but a daily reason for delight to those who are saved and a hope for those who are still lost, that there is still time. Father, thank you for, for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for loving us while we were unlovely. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been entrusted with. In your name we pray. Amen.